0: Okay, happy Halloween. It's our annual tradition of Logan talking me in to watch uh, a scary, creepy movie, whatever, something I probably would not normally do. And I was actually just before we got on here, I was kind of going through the list. It is kind of fun. This is this is a little tradition here on History and Film that goes back to uh, 2018, even predates Logan when I did uh, Vlad Tepes, the Dracula episode on Halloween back in 2018. And then Logan's first one, we did Time After Time, about Jack the Ripper, time travel one. That was actually a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, that's a good one.
0: Uh, Zodiac in 2020. 2021, we did Pan's Labyrinth. Last year, we did Valhalla Rising. And this year, we are doing another Robert Eggers film, The Lighthouse, with uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. And I guess I'll peel the Band-Aid off right to start with here because logan's eagerly eagerly awaiting my reaction <laughs> and it's gonna be a resounding eh. <laughs> you didn't like it it's it's i mean the performances are cool i i, I don't think the script is anything special i was bored I, I just i don't know it's i
1: feel like this is gonna be the witch all over again
0: well okay <laughs> yeah probably so because he is a great filmmaker. The pro- the production, it, it, like he is really good at putting a beautiful. Of course, the one Oscar I'm actually got with cinematography. I get it. Yeah, the vibe I get. Like I mean, it's it's really cool filmmaking. I don't like his stories. And we've talked about this many times. For me, it's, the story is everything. You could you could yeah. throw all the production value out the window if you give me a good story. He's the opposite. He's the, basically he's the opposite of what I want in movies. I'll take crap production values with a cool, compelling story. And he's like, well, the story is whatever, but I'm giving you the vibe that like it feels
1: cool. That is so like with the witch and with this. That is very much. The case where it's it's almost like the story. It's, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's. But not, no, you're right.
0: It's, it's 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 not really the point. Right. It's kind of an ambiance film, and
1: I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, bye. Okay. So then, so then you need to watch The Northman because it's the one that has more of the story. It yeah, it has it. It actually has more of a compelling story, okay. but it still has a lot of the like. It's a lot more accessible than The Witch and the Lighthouse. I, I I don't want to turn this into the Northman. Yeah, fair, 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 it, fair. We like we talked about in our favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Favorite movies. It was my favorite movie from last year, but it kind of it not does away with, but it it has a less of the just like you know the vibes, ambiance, movie style, and okay, yeah, is yeah. more of an actual like compelling narrative that I think you would actually like.
0: Right, and and I and I will fully concede the potential is there like if you're going to tell me three years from now i'm going to have a robert eggers movie as my favorite movie of the year or he's going to win best picture with something, i believe it i buy it he's that caliber of a filmmaker he just hasn't yeah. yet picked the story that has any traction for me i guess yeah and, and, and again I, and, and i'm not big on like every story has to have every question answered but there has to be some kind of sense basically i just feel like he makes rc farsi stuff and I say that as someone who's also kind of a film Oscary I agree with the critics, kind of snob a lot of the times. Yeah. But the, but the ones like this is where I kind of split. So The Rotten Tomatoes, it's a 90 slash 72, and I think the 72 is too high. Like, so, <laughs> I, I just, I, but at the same time, I'm like, oh my gosh, the Dafoe is amazing. Robert Pattinson, less so. I think his accent's pretty inconsistent. I couldn't figure out what he was trying to be or where he was trying to be from. And it just just kind of struck me as a British guy that didn't know what to sound like.
1: I I think that fits with the character. It it sounds like he's like trying to do... Well, he's doing like a like an old New England at like a almost like a JFK okay. but even older. Right. But I think that the inconsistency in the accent actually works because spoiler alert, he's pretending to be somebody else.
0: Mm, okay, that's fair. But yeah, I yeah, I just, yeah. It's 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 fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what did you think what did you think of like the the visuals? So the fact that they're like they they he does he uses the the old like one to one aspect ratio so the movie is based it's a square square. right 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 but then there's scenes especially like some of the scenes where it's indoors or when it's at night and it's dark and it basically makes the whole screen like the edges of the screen you can't even see anymore because it's dark on the edges oh and it does give well the the one-to-one aspect ratio in general but especially those things scenes it's a really good visual representation of, like, claustrophobia. Like, you feel, it feels isolated. It feels like a very small space, which, I don't know, like, that was one of the things that when I was watching, well, every time that I see it, but especially when I watched it the first time, you know, uh, that I appreciated was the feeling that you get watching it is, it's a great visual representation of how it would feel to be in a lighthouse for an indeterminate amount of time because we don't know how long this movie actually takes place it might and they even they even bring it up will the says how long we've we been here three weeks a couple days well there's also like, a
0: gaslighting going on so where you're not actually sure like how long and yeah
1: yeah you might yeah. be trying
0: he's like trying to convince him it's been longer than maybe it really has and like because obviously the he's, well, he's there for a four-week term and that four-week term is basically at, over halfway through the movie but then he's tracked right. and then you don't know from that much or from the rest of the movie how much time is passing. Right. No, uh, the one, the one, the one thing that would stand out that I thought was like really composed how so how dark the film is, and then Pattinson's character becomes obsessed with actually getting to go to the light part of the lighthouse as opposed to yes. just being the grounds guy and kind of just you know the support staff, uh, one man support staff. He's just like obsessed with the idea of getting into the light. And <laughs> spoiler alert: when he finally breaks in up there at the end, there is that. Massive juxtaposition between how dark, dreary, and claustrophobic the entire film has been, to when it's almost then like seeing the face of God when he gets into the light and the brilliance, and it's so blindingly bright at the top. And so it's just so contrary to everything we've seen thus far in the film. And that was kind of a powerful moment that they still also then really didn't do much with. And no, like, I do, all that stuff was fine, but like, there's nothing else there to keep me interested. It's so it's like watching a painting at that point. It's a pretty painting, but I don't need to stare at it for two hours. <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe you don't need to. No,
0: fair, fair. No, I, I yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, I, he makes really good movies, not for me. I'm trying to think, though, because I feel like I do have a wide variety of things that interest me. I'm trying to think of something that is more in this world that I could get behind. Honestly, maybe something like Awaking Life by Richard Linklater. I can dig something like that that has no real through story at all, some bizarre mm-hmm. visuals with the rotoscope animation, and and no plot. But, like, there's interesting ideas and conversations that are keeping me compelled throughout. And I feel like The Lighthouse was more just kind of, here's some guys that are miserable, and we're not really going to tell you uh, too much about them, and we are going to lie about what we do tell you. And that's not even really the point anyway, because isn't this... Creepy mermaid vision, creepy. Okay, sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I. There's no there there. There's no there there. I don't. I don't. I don't fault you for not liking it. But <laughs> okay. Okay. And I don't fault you for liking
0: it. Agree. 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 And I. I
1: fully. I. I fully understand that this movie is not for everyone. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's it's just uh you know it's it's one of those things where it's the point of the movie is it it, you're, it it is kind of like a painting that's actually a good analogy because it's kind of up to you to decide what the movie's about. Mm, okay. You know, which that <laughs> it sounds kind of like a cop out <laughs> and kind of pretentious, <laughs> but but I I think I think it's true. Like it's uh it's up to you like when you're watching it's, and if you if you ever watch it with somebody too, like you'll see scenes that both of you will have completely different interpretations for. Or You know, how much of it is actually real versus how much of it is in his head? Is any of it real? Right, right. Is the whole thing like just his like last dying vision as he's laying there, Mm. you know, with the seagulls eating him? Like, is this all happening in some sort of like afterlife, like a purgatory? Well, and then, you know, you you mentioned the like we see Willem Defoe's character constantly gaslighting him throughout the whole movie. So then it's like, well, how much of that is actually gaslighting versus how much of that is him telling the truth? And Robert Pattinson is just losing his mind, right?
0: And we don't know. And I'm, see, and that exactly. I'm, that i kind of fine with. I'm, i I can live with stuff like that where it's open to debate. I kind of dig some of that stuff, but I just, I feel like I need it more fleshed out or something. I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to, think. And, and it's kind of, so you look at. I mean, obviously it's a very small cast, but you realize, like, oh, like no, literally, there's like four people in the cast, and it's ninety percent. Yeah, and only two, two of them are
1: on screen for more than like ninety seconds. Right. You got like right. the mermaid, the mermaid and, then...
0: and then the guy he fakes basically he's in, he's impersonating or whatever, like that he killed or let die, you know, before yeah. he came down here. Yeah, so it's historically here, it's it's set roughly in the eighteen nineties. Uh Willem Dafoe's character does make some references when he's talking about his past not necessarily exploits, but just past jobs and you know, just things for the past. He he kinda references eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties like the ideas that were now in the 18, 1890s. Do they say exactly where this is or is it just kind of vaguely off the New England coast?
1: It's off the New England coast somewhere. And we do know that it's even given their accents and the fact that, you know, he says he's uh, Robert Pattinson's character says that he's worked in Canada and Willem Dafoe does not have an American accent, which might leave it open to being somewhere other than the United States. Oh, it could be Nova Scotia.
0: But I, I kind of got the vibe it was not. Yeah,
1: but... Well, we do, We see in the scene where Robert Pattinson is painting the lighthouse and he's on the where he falls off the like, well, not scaffolding. What's that? The little pulley system yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, Where he's on the rope. He's wearing an apron that says United States Lighthouse Establishment. Oh, uh, okay. So we do know that it's at least a U.S. lighthouse. Well, and I think when Defoe says something about
0: the Pattinson work previously in Canada, the way he says Canada or up Canada way implies that it's another place. So he mentions yeah. Canada as other, which is like, yeah. okay, this is the United States then. So I mean, I, I, I thought it was, yeah, pretty clear the United States. So it's probably not on an actual, though, island. Like it's probably just some fictional uh, or at least unnamed. Because uh, it, obviously it's clearly an island because they can't, they're, they're isolated. They're extremely isolated. Right. And they're basically waiting. For, I mean, the whole reason his four year, her story's four week stint doesn't end is because the relief vessel either didn't come or they were drunk and missed it and it left before he was able to get taken away. Of yeah. To your point, if the Defoe character even exists, because it might just be a manifestation manifestation of Pattinson's mania, <laughs> like, a, yeah. like a Fight Club kind of thing, right? So it's based on. So it's kind of interesting. You you read the Wikipedia stuff, and it talks about two different uh, sources here that's based on, but it's not based on anything enough to actually. It. So like they t- they refer to there was an Edgar Allan Poe unfinished short story called The Lighthouse. But it's so loosely inspired by that. Poe doesn't get like a writing credit or anything here. It's like it's directly based on this Poe story. It's more of like an right. inspiration and where they got the title. So the, the story there is basically Poe had started a series. Uh, we don't even know if it's going to be a short story or, or a novel because it's basically just a couple pages worth of stuff he had. It was a series of journal entries or how the story was going to happen and it actually starts in like Norway in 1796 and the narrator writing these journal entries is just basically talking about how he's looking forward to being alone while he works on the white house uh, lighthouse because no one else will be around and he can focus on his writing and there are kind of themes of isolation and storms kind of at this with this person working at lighthouse that's it that's that's all Poe wrote that's it. There's no second character. There's no yeah, yeah anything else. So that's that, that's the reason why it's like not based on this post story, but kind of inspired by and to take the same title. And then the other one that's a little more connected to the real events. But you don't have to you don't have to give a credit when it's based on an actual history here. So there was uh in Wales in 1801 there was a they call it the Smalls Lighthouse tragedy, and there were two guys working there both named Thomas, which is the same names both the guys have in the film. Yep. So there's a real-life connection other um, than it was Wales and almost 100 years earlier. And so these guys kind of didn't get along when fought in public, fight in public occasionally, which means when one of them died supposedly in an accident, the other guy thought, oh, crap, uh, they're going to think I murdered him because we fight all the time, and now he's dead. So I can't I don't want to throw his body into the sea where it'll like wash up and I'm going to get in big trouble. So he puts the corpse in like a coffin and hangs the coffin from like the side of one of the buildings at their lighthouse. And the wind just kind of then breaks up this makeshift coffin. And like, I don't know if it's the whole body or like, basically said like at least like an arm ends up like hanging and dangling out the window. And like this guy starts going crazy and it was just kind of this really really creepy thing. I mean, crazy, spooky, creepy stuff. And then the guy kind of goes crazy. So after this kind of all comes to light, Britain put in a rule that required lighthouses to have three man crews at all times going forward. There, which actually I'd be curious, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't look into to see if uh, if the United because obviously that that really did happen in 1801. Did the United States ever implement similar rules? Would you have actually had a two man crew in the 1890s in New England? or uh were three-man crews kind of the standard on this side of the Atlantic Atlantic as well and uh I actually didn't see anything about that I don't know if you did either
1: uh no I I didn't see anything about crew size but that is uh an interesting an interesting idea is that you would yeah because he like obviously having one person there would be not enough because it's a you know, you would want at least two people, but then having two people, you would want a third, right? <laughs> a third right. person because it's <laughs> that way the that way the uh, the social dynamic, you know, is is preserved. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Three makes sense, but yeah, I don't know about actual rules for. I guess. Well, yeah, you right. said he said it says on his sweatshirt. I'd be curious to look up what his sweatshirt said there. Like, look up the history of that actual agency.
1: What did you say? It uh, I don't. I don't think it is one. So oh, in the okay. in the movie the. Apron that he's wearing says United States Lighthouse Establishment, but in in real life, it's called the United States Lighthouse Board, and that wasn't even—I don't even think that that was necessarily like a thing where like you would have that written on clothing and stuff that you would wear at the lighthouse. I think that was just the name of the organization that was the agency responsible for lighthouses okay yeah 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 so uh lighthouses have actually been around for a really really long time as far back as 2000 BC there is evidence of basically at at that point it was just towers that they would light fires on and back then back in like ancient times those lighthouses for lack of a better term again think think more of like oh what is it it in uh the giant fires they light in Lord of the Rings.
0: Oh, yeah, the beacons. Gondor yeah, calls for yeah. Beacons, yeah. Yeah.
1: But is, is there a name for those in, like, in Lord of the Rings?
0: Oh, I thought they just called them the signal beacons. The beacons are lit, yeah.
1: Yeah, anyways, th- think more like that than, like, an actual lighthouse. It's basically just yes. a big stone tower that they would light a fire on top of. Right. And at that point in time, it was used more of as, a like, a navigation beacon than it was for, like, a warning against rocks or reefs or something. Because sailors would, you know, as they're going down the coast at night, they could look and see where these beacons are, and then that way they know they know where to go. And then also, this is before the days of clearly marked ports. Oh, you just you just pull up on the shore somewhere, right? So these lighthouses would show you basically like this is where you park, like that's where <laughs> you, you just go to th- go to that, huh? So that's that's how lighthouses started, and they, they got, you know, gradually more advanced in Greek and Roman times. The Greeks and the Romans both built lighthouses all over the place, again, mostly as kind of navigation beacons in the Middle Ages and then into the Renaissance is when they first started building lighthouses for warnings, like, you know, hey, there's rocks and reefs right here, mm. and the first... The first ones of those were built in uh, Britain and France around the late 1500s, early 1600s. When lighthouses got really, really popular was at the turn of the 18th century, so going into the 1700s with all the ships going back and forth between Europe and the New World. Okay. Then lighthouses became way more popular. They And that's when you started to see like Act, what we would think of as a lighthouse, like that uh, iconic structure with the light on top, that's when those started to be built, both in Europe and in the Americas.
0: Oh, so, the, yeah, so they really are associated with the history of New England and the United States, because even 100 yeah. years before the United States, you're getting these lighthouses put up, huh?
1: Yeah, so the first, the first lighthouse in the United States was called the Boston Light, and it was built in Boston Harbor in 1716, and then lighthouses popped up all down the coast from Maine all the way down to, like, the Carolinas, and yeah, there's not really, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of it as far as, as far as how they're used, because their purpose never really changed, it, like, they would make advancements in, in the lighting and stuff, so they used to be, you know, way back in the day, it was wood fire, and then you would have coal. And then they developed different kinds of lamps that would run on oils, like whale oil or even vegetable oil. And then you would have gas powered. And now obviously, they're all electric. There was uh, one guy, an engineer. uh, He's a Scottish guy named Robert Stevenson. He is basically the father of everything that you think of when you think of a of a modern style lighthouse. So he worked for the Northern Lighthouse Board which was a lighthouse a Scottish lighthouse agency and he designed and oversaw the construction uh of a ton of lighthouses and he he was the first guy to use Fresnel lenses in uh lighthouses and innovated the rotation and the shuttering system so that you could like make the light flash when when was this this was in the 1790s okay okay
0: because i was i was thinking that stuff sound, it sounded like it had been around for a while because yeah okay these innovations were way back okay
1: yeah it's, yeah so this is the 1790s and then he actually he had multiple sons that also went to be lighthouse engineers and then they had sons who also went on to it was like a dynasty of huh. like lighthouse engineers that all uh go back to this one robert stevenson this this engineer
0: i like the idea that even these niche little things have you know a whole lore and history to them and people who are like that's their thing and it's, so it's we we it's, yeah it's easiest for us to kind of ignore oh yeah there's some lighthouses over there that's kind of cool it's like no there's people who were invested in that and generations of their family were like lighthouse people and and i guess so it did actually occur to me <laughs> that they were still I, know, I mean i know they're still there and extensively in use but like it's the idea of like a modern like 21st century lighthouse like it never even occurred to me that they wouldn't just be like kind of just ah, it's still just like a lamp there that they kind of use as like a tourist destination and yes technically the boats still use them but it's like no it sounds like the newer ones like they have hooked up with like all kinds of gps and signal like they're sending like data to ships and stuff now and it's like so it's still coming out of the lighthouse even if it's, So it's way yeah. more than just the light, it's a navigational hub for ships off the coast I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting
1: Right, yeah, yeah, so basically it's the purpose of the lighthouse hasn't changed the, Its purpose is to keep ships from running into rocks and stuff Right, but now I could do like sonar or something probably or Right, yeah. but the the way that it does that has just gotten more and more advanced over the centuries But the the main purpose basically is still the same thing that it was, you know, thousands of years ago but is there, I mean, and it's, uh, with some of these historic ones, though, because I did go visit, and I,
0: I don't know, I guess we didn't go in it, but I did go visit, like, the the, the famous one is that uh, the Portland headlight or whatever is kind of the uh, the iconic one off the coast of Maine there near Portland, mm-hmm. and so it is kind of a tourist destination, a famous photo spot, but, like, <laughs> this feels like a silly question, but I legit no, don't know the answer. Does someone work in it? <laughs> like, the, is there, like... Is there is it still an active lighthouse with like a a crew that has to our three man crew that has to like be in charge of this lighthouse and making sure it's operational and helping ships or is it more just like hey isn't this neat and it looks cool and it's just a tourist spot and yes there's a lamp but there's not actually like a lighthouse crew it's more just like the museum workers that keep the light on I I don't don't know which direction that goes
1: (laughs) yeah it probably depends on. The lighthouse. Everyone's gonna be different. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's some. Some are probably more museums. Some okay. are more active. That makes sense. I would imagine, though, that these days, because the whole thing with like the the crew is you had to keep the light burning at all times. But if you have an electric light, you know, oh, right? It, that's not really an issue. Like you don't have to keep hauling your tank of whale oil up the stairs to pour into the lamp to keep it lit like it just it you just turn on the switch and it's good the crew is the guy who gets called
0: to change it when it's out <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> but if there's more technology in there though i didn't know if there's like like a guy in there that's like like almost like a air it's not like an air traffic control thing where there has to be someone in there 24 7 to like bring the ships in and out i don't think that's the case anymore because the yeah. traffic isn't to that level right right unless you have like a massive massive port to like maybe some of these like well, I mean, like a Boston Harbor, we found a lot of commercial ships in and out. Maybe on those, you do have a little more of a persistent presence versus like Portland, Maine. I'm like, I don't think that's a destination.
1: I would imagine that these days, most of that is probably done through electronic communication, either satellite or radio. But right. I don't think there's like... Right. We'd have to look more
0: into just modern maritime shipping practices. <laughs> Which sounds really, really boring. <laughs> but you do see those, like those massive cargo ships, like that one that blocked block the Suez Canal a few years back. Like, yeah, how those ships operate and where, where exactly they dock, and what I'm sure, like you said, it's all computers and GPS nowadays. And I'm sure there's very little in right. the way of, uh, yeah, lighthouses kind of controlling everything they accomplish. The few other notes in the in the film. Oh, so I was gonna say then. Uh, as far as the fuel source, I think that that almost did feel a little... They don't actually specifically show, but they kind of show some coal shoveling and stuff. They almost kind of imply that this was a coal-fueled lighthouse, which to me felt a little anachronis- anachronistic. Or I guess you could also say, just because it's the 1890s and we could be using gas doesn't mean this isolated one was up to modern standards, and maybe it was still coal.
1: I thought that the... So I thought the light itself was not powered by coal. The light oh, okay. itself was... was uh, it was either like oil or some sort of liquid fuel. With that
0: stuff he was trying to haul up the stairs at one point, maybe it was more yeah, of a, yeah, a yeah gas or a liquid fuel there. Okay, okay. Right. Uh,
1: the coal I think was for their for their house. For their heat. I think that was yeah, for okay. for their heat. Yeah, probably okay. like a coal stove. I think that's what the coal was for. So then there's uh, my
0: few other kind of random notes that kind of work in the film here. So yeah, Paz's character mentions he had been working basically up in the timber industry up in the Hudson Bay area of Canada. And so I was kind of researching that. Couldn't really find anything other than just the broad strokes of, yes, Canada itself is a massive timber producer. But, like, I couldn't find anything specific about the Hudson Bay area being a particular hot area for that. And there is something called the Hudson Bay Company, but it has it isn't tied to the timber industry. So, yeah, probably. So, But there's nothing really specific there. There's a, a quick reference to Captain... Ahab when uh patents is kind of going crazy. And that was written in 1851. So yeah, it could have been a cultural reference that they would have made in the eighteen nineties for sure. The other one, and he says it a couple times, talk about being a wiki. You can be a wiki, and that was an actual nickname for lighthouse keepers. They would be called wikis, Mm uh, because they were essentially keeping the wick, quote, you know, the metaphorical wick of a lighthouse burning, so they would be called wikis, and that, that is accurate. And yeah I guess then the the last one I I just kind of had Edgar Allan Poe since this short story uh, of his was kind of maybe an inspiration of sorts a loose inspiration for them to at least kind of explore their own idea about uh, an ice house a uh, lighthouse with an isolated protagonist or two and now Poe himself though is this tracks back quite a bit in our timeline I for you it's easy to forget how how long ago Edgar Allan Poe was. He was born in 1809 and died when he was 40. So he was dead well before uh, this story takes place or where we are at in our timeline here. But it is a good guy to talk about on Halloween here who I don't think we've talked about uh, before uh, on the show. So yeah, born in Boston, 1809. His father kind of abandoned the family and his mom died when he was young. So it's actually a family named the Allens that took him in to their home in Richmond, Virginia. So that's where he gets his, quote, middle name. He was just Edgar Poe. And then the hmm. Allens essentially, uh, not adopt him, but take him in as like their ward or their foster child. So that's where the Allen comes, Edgar Allen Poe. And he he wrote from an early age. He had published a set of short stories when he was 18. Brief stints in the Army didn't work out. He couldn't afford to finish college. He just wanted to write did get work with various publications in New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. Would kind of be a critic, you know, on theater and other people's writings while working on his own stuff. Pretty normal young writer life in the early 1800s. And again, this is their old, all that old 19th century stuff. When he was 27, he marries his 13-year-old cousin. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> which again is, it's, it's. <laughs> It's just so weird that like that's just
1: like a footnote in his in his, in who he was. If I've said it once, <laughs> I've said it a hundred times. There was a lot of that going around back then, right? So I think I think people <laughs> nowadays
0: will be like, he was this freak because of that, not fully understanding how. And I'm not saying it was like everybody was doing it, but it wasn't raising eyebrows back then, right? To the extent, it didn't. I mean, shoot, didn't? Yeah. Didn't the uh is it jerry lewis jerry lee lewis the guy who wrote great balls of fire
1: didn't he do that just like 50 years ago oh i don't know but i know that elvis presley he started i'll put this in heavy ass air quotes dating priscilla when he lived in germany but they couldn't get married because she was only 14 and had right. to wait till she was 16 right so it's well and she wasn't his cousin so it's i guess that's I don't know, not as bad or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. anyway, but still, like, and, and, but that's that's not ancient history though. Like that that was the fifties, right? Right. So <laughs> Edgar and Poe, we're talking eighteen
0: thirty six. I mean, yeah. Anyway, not not excusing it, just saying it's it's not a Poe was a weirdo thing. It's uh the nineteenth century was a weird
1: thing, <laughs> <laughs> right? It. He might have been a, a weirdo, but, like, yeah, everyone was weirdos. Yeah. There you go. And I don't think they
0: had any kids. She died 12 years later uh, when she was 25, and he didn't die too much longer after that. Because, you know, yeah, he would have been 39. He dies when he's 40. Yeah, so his most famous work, The Raven, uh, was 1845. So, yeah, I guess that'd be about four years before his death. And it was a big hit at the time. Like, everyone's like, oh, man, this is really cool. You did some good stuff there, Poe. And I still like the NFL tie that the Baltimore Ravens are like the only professional football or professional sports team named after a poem. The idea that this yeah. is this, this guy from Baltimore. His famous poem is the Raven. So they named the football team, the Ravens after an 1845 poem. I don't know. I think that's neat. <laughs> now the weirdest thing about Poe. Oh, of course I, I should mention, I didn't write it down in my notes here, but it is. So he is also credited with inventing the detective story, which I think is kind of a big deal that he doesn't get enough credit for. So he dies in 1849 and he's writing stories about detectives solving mysteries. And like, apparently no one had done that before Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so that whole genre goes back to Poe. So he's known for like the creepy stuff, you know, Telltale Heart, uh, the Raven, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Murder at the Rue Morgue or whatever. Actually that might be the detective one. If I, if not, I'm thinking about it. I think it's, I actually forget the exact title unless you look that up there. Anyway, the weirdest thing about Poe is his death because we really don't know what happened, and it's almost like there's almost even like a super... For for his reputation of his works, and he's like the perfect kind of Halloween kind of person to look into, his death is almost its own horror story that we don't have the answer to.
1: And it's like just given like the kind of like dark and creepy nature of his writings it sounds kind of bad to say this but it like that's the perfect death for this guy (laughs) (laughs) yes yes so
0: he's 40 years old and basically he was he was headed to new york from richmond virginia and disappeared along the way so like all of a sudden he's like you know he's leaves richmond supposed to show up in new york and he just kind of vanishes and no one knows where he is for a week so a week after he disappears He's found stumbling around in Baltimore and not drunk, almost like del- just delirious. Like he's, he makes no sense. We, he, we can't even like get him to get either can't get him to talk or can't get him to make any sense. Can't get him to explain where he's been or what happened. He's just like, he's just out of it mentally. His clothes are run down and dirty with some speculating they're not even his clothes. So just the idea that a missing Edgar Allan Poe shows up wearing someone else's clothes and delirious a week later. Like, that happened. (laughs) And so they take him to basically, you know, the equivalent of, like, the drunk wing of the hospital. But basically no one except, like, people who were like, essentially character assassins who's... Even people at the time did not buy their stories. No one thinks he was drunk. Like, the guy, he was a casual drinker at most... And was never known to have an alcohol issue or anything like that. Like, he was a, pretty much a sober guy who would just drink socially on occasion. And so, and and the people who found him, like, no, he wasn't drunk. He was just delirious. So he's in the hospital. He keeps calling out the name Reynolds and then dies the next day. No one knows who Reynolds is or what that was referring to. Jeez. <laughs> and that's it. They, they ruled out drug use at the time. There's countless ideas and we just don't know it could have been a million different diseases they tested his hair in 2006 to kind of see if they could narrow things down that ruled out lead or mercury poisoning um, because that would have shown in hair samples and it did not one theory and this one actually kind of makes sense but it's boring so i don't like it (laughs) (laughs) there was something called cooping as in basically keeping someone cooped up But it was an election fraud thing that people would go through. And this ties in when we think about all the Tammany Hall stuff we've talked about before and the election fraud that was rampant in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. that they would go around, capture people, coerce them, you know, threaten them, maybe drug them up, get them to change their uh, clothes and go and vote multiple times while they basically kept them imprisoned in between voting sessions. And it was called cooping. So it's possible Edgar Allan Poe mm. just got captured by a group doing this. So, again, I don't like that because it's kind of a boring, non-supernatural answer. Yes. <laughs> and, again, we don't know that that's the case. It's, it, it, that is just purely speculation. There's no strong evidence other than that someone else's clothes, and And that wouldn't explain why he was almost crazy. I mean, yeah, you're, you're not going to be in a good place if you're, you know, being held against your will for a week. But you wouldn't think it would break him. It seems like it broke him, whatever happened to him yeah his uh his funeral funeral was uh so sparsely attended uh at the time that the reverend overseeing it didn't even bother with the sermon it was just kind of like oh hey everybody thanks for coming all right let's let's get this over with didn't even give a sermon Jeez. so the city of baltimore then kind of gave him a new funeral in 2009 to kind of honor him so he got a he actually got like this big everybody attending funeral in 2009 is more of a celebration of poe's life and work and his ties to the city of, of baltimore and yeah after, after his death i did kind of mention there was uh, uh a lot of people trying to use him as a cautionary tale but it was it was all these temperance people because the, the temperance movement that ultimately leads to prohibition in the early 20th century yeah those people were trying to use poe as a see what happens when you drink and do drugs you end up stumbling oh, around and dead, and so it was like they're just, they just trying to throw uh, throw Poe under the bus, and uh, but no one really either then or now buys those uh, attempts to assassinate his character. And again, it does sound like he was kind of a weird guy, cousin marrying notwithstanding. <laughs> but yeah, we don't know. And so, man, what it really makes me think of I, I forget if I mentioned this on the podcast or not before, but there's uh, obviously there's a story here. You could. You could definitely do a, a you know, an artist's interpretation of what happened in Poe's final days, and do the whole backstory where Poe's this protagonist, and it's uh, this whole basically you could do a Poe like mystery about Poe's final days and all those kinds of things. It's an alien abduction story, right? Something like that, or, or <laughs> I, I always think more supernatural, like there's like spirits and something like that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. But you could even tie it down into his his last uh, his last unfinished work with the lighthouse, and you know you can do parallels there, and you could definitely there's there's a lot of potential there for a story. But there's a story like that that already exists that Dan Simmons, no relation, wrote called <laughs> Drood. Have I mentioned Drood to you before? I don't know. So we, it's about Charles Dickens.
1: Okay, because we've talked about Dan Simmons before. I don't know if, we ever, if you've ever talked about Drood before, I, I'm, and I'm not familiar with it. So Oh,
0: because he, he also wrote The Terror. So we probably talked about him in regards to The Terror. That's,
1: you're right. Yep, that's what okay. we talked about. We have talked about The Terror. So Drood is actually really freaking
0: cool. The narrator is another author, Wilkie Collins, who wrote uh, Moonstone and The Woman in White, which are also very iconic 19th century detective novels that that hold up today. They're really, really good. I recommend Wilkie Collins' stuff. And he was, in real life, a contemporary of Charles Dickens. Dickens' last unfinished work, similar to what we're talking about Poe here at The Lighthouse, was uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And that's just from memory, but I think that's about right. So it was unfinished. And also true is that Dickens survived a train wreck later in his life. Like the train derails and Dickens is on it, and that that really happened too. Okay. So the story, so the story then is, that that uh, Dan Simmons came up with is this mysterious druid figure was also on the train and is somehow tied into Dickens, and he just kind of does this good job of weaving this mystery that you don't know if it's. if there's a supernatural element and this druid is some kind of spirit figure that's influencing dickens or if it's more just a you know everything is is real life normal no supernatural elements so there's just maybe like some conspiracy stuff going on and and uh and i kind of forget the details beyond that other than it starts messing with collins's sanity very much like patters pattinson in this film he did so. He starts to doubt, like what's real and what's not. What does Dickens know? And what does Dickens not know? Who is this Drew character? Does this Drew character even actually exist, or is it all just in my head? It's a very cool story, and I just dug that it stems from Dickens's actual unfinished novel, and the fact that Dickens was actually in a train accident, and it kind of goes goes from there. But it, to me, it's it's a very similar vibe to what this end of Edgar uh, and Poe's life uh, would also have been, with the whole showing up delirious after a week of being in hiding
1: isn't uh, the terror uh, now that we bring that up isn't that kind of the same thing i mean that's it's based on an actual historical right. event but then dan simmons kind of takes it and makes it just he kind of like turns up the creepiness just like two extra notches past what is already a creepy but very true story Right. Yeah. So I think, and we have mentioned the terror
0: before on here. But yeah, so there was an actual uh, expedition looking for the Northwest Passages where they end up stranded in the ice. And all we know is that after at some point, the crews abandoned the ship and were never seen or heard from again. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Really happened. Very creepy. Well, Dan Simmons goes and tells, here's what I think happened. But he makes it a, a scientific. Basically, they end up with like a... A yeti equivalent, a little snowman.
1: It's like a monster is, yeah. Yes, it's like eating yes. them
0: and stuff. Yeah, right. So while they're trapped in the ice, they're also having to fend off this monster. And he tells, and he uses the actual journal entries combined with uh stuff he's inventing to make it this horror story. The ship was actually called the Terror, so it works perfect yeah. as a parallel for a horror story right. set in the frozen north. So yeah, he, he's actually a really, really good author. Another one of his books, and he gives us a bonus episode. So we can kind of, we can just make this one of our. The side notes are incorporated here oh yeah still go to our our newly our newly uh created uh patreon slash history and film um for more of this kind of stuff but uh he did another one called hyperion this is like from the 80s or 90s he wrote this a long time ago and it's essentially canterbury tales in space oh yeah
1: you've told me about that one before
0: yeah yeah it's all and it's all all the different people with all their stories yeah just like canterbury tales except that they're all they're all basically little sci-fi stories yeah. He's really good with the dark and the grit and stuff like that, though. He he kind of has these uh, gritty, well-written, realistic tales with uh, some sort of sci-fi, fantasy, horror elements, supernatural to them, but in a very realistic, raw way. And it's and it's just very well-written. And I, th- I think those are the only three books of his I've read, I think, are The
1: Terror, Druid, and Hyperion. But uh, I need to check out more of his stuff because it's uh, all really good. Have you seen the show The Terror? I think they made a oh. show, like TV show or miniseries or something. No,
0: no, yeah, yeah. I again because I don't really like watching scary stuff. I haven't. <laughs> oh, around, yeah, that's a good point. I haven't gotten around like yeah, like I'll read Stephen King, but I don't necessarily want to watch, watch it. <laughs> anyway, and, and I had another note, and again, I didn't really research this, but we do see mermaids. I was going to kind of look at mermaids, maybe a little more in depth because there's the mermaid figurine and a lot of his visions are involving mermaids.
1: Yeah, it's like a whole uh conspiracy rabbit hole you can do- go down. Like there are even like modern modern conspiracy theories about how mermaids are real and Oh, really? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I should have said they're not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just you kind know, I mean, that goes. I mean, they go. They go way back, obviously, because even in, in in the Odyssey, that it's like the sirens are essentially mermaids, right? That like are right. singing to call yeah. the sailors to shipwreck. They're essentially mermaids out on a rock, so kind of one of those very old mystical creatures, which are kind of cool. That those things that we still see in modern films, like the lighthouse, but like vampires, werewolves, mermaids, all those you know unicorns, all those creatures go. Have the, dragons have these histories that are thousands of years old which is actually kind of neat that they uh continue to have relevance to our culture today and stories we like to tell and of course you think back to you know thousands of years ago people probably did believe they actually existed and now they're more just uh for stories but it is kind of fun uh to look back and that might be something we need to put a pin in for now because I, I think we could definitely do a whole episode maybe maybe that isn't being next year's halloween it's just i a, a look at a lot of these kind of the history of these creatures as far as humans. So so because so, you can tie it into history as just oh, you look at how yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the history of these types of stories. Again, in this film it's nothing but visions. Um I don't I think there's any there's no hints that there's I guess he does actually think he sees one in the water, but he, he always kinda wakes up uh from it at
1: some point. I did have one one little tiny note, and this is just it's just one of those things where it kind of goes to or kind of points to willem defoe's character being full of shit oh so he's always talking about oh it's bad luck to do this bad luck to do that bad luck to kill a seagull you know because those are the souls of are, lost sailors, uh, the souls yeah. of sailors that have that have met therein but at the very beginning of the movie he like raises it he does a toast and he tells robert pattinson's character to toast and he won't do it because he says i don't drink right and I, it's funny because he said <laughs> this is a, a side note to this side note but he's, it's funny how he says something to the effect of a man who doesn't drink better have a good reason like <laughs> which is just funny like culturally how today would be like oh you, oh you don't drink yeah hey sorry about that like did, you know didn't mean to like try and pressure oh. <laughs> back in the day he's like if you're not gonna drink this booze, I I don't think I can trust you. Like you you better have a really good reason not to drink if you're not gonna be drinking in my lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So he he tells me he doesn't drink. So he he takes his cup and he goes and fills it with water from the cistern, and they toast. And Robert Pattinson is toasting with water. And I think it's curious that Willem Dafoe, who's so superstitious about all this other nautical stuff, doesn't have an issue with Robert Pattinson toasting with water. Because that is a like a big no-no, especially like on ships or in, you know, in the Navy, Mm. in in nautical circles. Toasting with water is a big no-no because it is like a like the, the, the idea is if you toast with water, then you will go to a watery grave. Oh, so you only toast with, you know, other beverages, but never with water but he doesn't say anything about it so does it have to be alcoholic or could it be like even like a tea or a coffee
0: like is it, is is just anti water or so that
1: be- that i that i don't know it's typically it's you, you only toast with alcohol right but but yeah never never with water okay course the water there is kind of like t- like isn't like the cistern tainted or something well right that's what they they use it as, as the setup because he takes a sip and he spits it out and then will Defoe says oh yeah you know haha you know i i tricked you into drinking this water that's actually really gross and by the way that's your job is to fix the cistern because the water's nasty so there's actually so then he goes to like clean it what is he putting in the cistern is that like uh- i don't know it looks it looks like lie. How you would like dump lie on like a. That's what a, I thought, but that would just poison them. Like a slit trench or like a yeah. like a toilet, like an outdoor like trench toilet. But I don't, I don't know what that would, what that would be, because like, you wouldn't want to drink that. Right, even diluted lie would be a problem. I, I, I didn't get that exactly.
0: It, and it felt like he was trying to quote sanitize it, but right, yeah. That, that, the idea that that was something he was putting to their drinking water didn't. I don't know. I didn't look at the. Realisticness of that, I guess. Hmm. All right, we always have more homework to do, then, huh? <laughs> um, Oh, actually, so here's what I actually wanted to end with. So this is a this is a little since a bonus episode. This is a little uh, follow up stuff that uh, uh, from our Lincoln episode because this will be the first chance we've had to talk about since that episode aired or since I since I uh, stumbled across this. Okay. So. You talked about Boston Corbett and how he kind of was like a crazy guy after and like dis- disappears and ends up in Kansas. Like you, you talked about Boston Corbett.
1: Yeah. Y- you
0: missed a very significant detail about Boston Corbett. Oh, no. In 1858, so obviously well before uh, Lincoln is assassinated and well before Corbett himself then kills Booth, he castrated himself with a pair of scissors. Oh jeez. And why? So it has to do with uh basically he was it, it was religiously inspired. Basically, I feel lust, therefore I must cut out the eye that offends me. And oh, so I'm going to castrate gosh. myself because I saw two prostitutes on the street and I felt lust, so I'm going to castrate myself with a pair of scissors. And apparently like didn't even go seek immediate medical attention just like went out to get a drink and everyone's like uh dude why are you bleeding down there <laughs> like oh man like so so the craziness was well before he killed booth and kind of went crazy after so the book and i sent you it's actually a text about this the book that you might find interesting and i have not read it but it was a, a guy who was actually a the author was a guest on Doug Lowe's movies, and that's where he brought this up. And then I and it was also on the Wikipedia page as well. So you know those books by uh, Bill O'Reilly called he did like killing Lincoln, killing Reagan, killing Kennedy. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly did all those books. So this guy uh, Jesse Joyce wrote a book called "Killing the Guys Who Killed the Guy Who Killed Lincoln," <laughs> a nutty story about Edwin Booth and Boston Corbett. It doesn't look like it's on Amazon. it just came out a month or two ago, and so I've, I, I can send you some links here, but I, so I'm not even sure where to buy it. So I don't know if he's intentionally avoiding Amazon or what's going on there, but it does sound like he's trying to do like a almost like a Sarah Val thing where it's a comedic version of an actual history where he's just kind of having fun with it, but it also like actually happened because he talks about he talked about Edwin Booth. Um, and I don't remember if we talked about this. Edwin Booth. We we talked about Booth being uh, from an acting family, and basically right, his yeah. brother his brother was way more famous and way more successful of an actor. But then his crazy younger brother kills the president, and so
1: no, everyone forgets him. Huh. Okay. Because I knew that they. Because it wasn't his. Like his dad was an actor too. Right. It was, it was, like, the whole family was actors,
0: but like they were all I think northern sympathizers, and and. John Wilkes was like the main one that was like a Southern sympathizer or whatever. Um, kind of the maybe even the black sheep of the family. Huh. Anyway, yeah, so you might check that out. And I just thought it was crazy that uh, there's way so Boston Corbett might be one of those uh, good candidates for most interesting people in American history.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Just as a very uh, crazy story, and that we might be able to look more into. Or again, and there's another disappearance. I'm mean, going back to the Halloween stuff and the uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and just
1: because uh, then Corbett just also just kind of vanished one day. Yeah, he disappeared. Nobody knows what actually happened to him. Yeah, yeah. There's there's like several theories, obviously, but no one no, right. no one knows for sure. Yep. Huh. Okay. Well, yeah. I hope you have a good Halloween here,
0: everyone, and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming next Tuesday. See ya.